0: Well, this should be interesting because our guest today has created a company, has launched
1: a company that both you and I will not consume. (laughs) (laughs) But at least from my standpoint, though, man, I I think that's one of the... I can't can't do it. You can't. Uh, My (laughs) thing is growing up in the the Buffalo, New York area, man, like... seafood was not, uh, necessarily a thing, you know, It's like, I, I think there's a, a big educational component to it. And if you grow up with something then that's just part of your culture. And, and so like, then I moved here and I was like, man, I don't, I don't know anything about anything. So I never really, when you I moved here, what did like they say was the area food? I know we talked about this before, yeah. but like, what, like, was there a food? Cause for
0: me, I felt like it was barbecue and it was maybe seafood crabs, maybe something like that.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, crab cakes uh, was one. um, But, uh, but, I mean, there's not a lot of chickens in Buffalo, is there? Well, there's a lot of chicken wings. But, I don't know, I'm excited to have Bay on uh, the show, because we got... This is a second time appearance for Bay, uh, but a different capacity, so... uh,
2: who, who's done? Who's done the most? Is there like a target? Do I have to start like ten companies in Hampton Roads? I, the I think there's
1: three or four. We've people. had three people on
0: twice, so you are the third. No, 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 no. Erica, Nate,
1: Chris, Bay. Oh, Scott. I forgot about Scoo Scott.
2: <laughs> <laughs> can't say Scott, that about you guys. Scott, Scott
0: Janney
1: from uh, Magazine Jukebox. We, he was on twice. Yeah. Oh wow. I don't know, man. The, episode 113. I mean, that's just that's a lot of shows going back to see.
0: There's probably one more in there that we have. Oh, no, there was the um, the event guy too, the conference guy.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that's really great about the show is the fact that uh, like when we have great companies, you, it's almost we can do a, uh, an annual pulse check to see, hey, what have you done? What progress have you been made? And uh, really stemming back to last week when we were talking to uh, Fathom, yeah, if people want to do research on someone, if you if if we have an investor on the show, Bay, you're AO. Uh, it's like, hey, watch the podcast, learn a little bit about the person that you're going to be talking to. It's a great, great way to uh, to get some insight. Yeah.
0: How do you how do you
1: research Bay? Like what like
0: what is your media of choice?
2: Yeah, I'm more of a YouTube guy, but I think it's yeah. because I got off social media from a personal perspective when my daughter was born. It was sort of like. My dad quit cigarettes the day I was born. I quit social media the day my daughter was born. because um, I was doing it, I was doing it, you know, yeah, exactly. Probably same for your health, right? Um, you know, mental versus biological, right. I guess. But I, um, no, I, I, I honestly now I'm pretty just, pretty much just YouTube. Like, so I, I'll, I'll look up someone on LinkedIn if I'm having a meeting or something. I've never heard of them, but I'm usually not even logged in. Like, I'm not looking to like, like I have like, I don't know. 1800 unlooked at invites or something on like 10, you know, like, so so I I just don't participate anymore, but I will at least check them out.
0: Right. Yeah. Why why is that? Why YouTube? Is it because you want to go deeper into the context of something like what's, what is it about YouTube that, um, that works best for you?
2: I think because if I'm, I like to, I like to better understand how someone communicates, how their mind thinks and when, especially if you're going into a meeting, if that's possible, right. Because you can just look at, their tweets or their, you know, LinkedIn bio or whatever. I don't really think, think it gives you that much context. Whereas seeing someone in video and how they communicate, how their mind wanders or how they look at, you know, how they answer questions, all those things I think are really helpful, especially when you're going into a live kind of meeting engagement. So if you're looking for money, you know, as a startup or whatever, I'd imagine it's pretty high fidelity, right? I think it's, there's probably few things as good as this.
1: Yeah. The thing that, uh, is cool about this is the fact that, I mean, you've, you've helped build, I don't know hundreds of companies I'm guessing. Uh, and then, uh, you know, either in Asia or San Francisco, and now you're back, uh, or the Bay area. And now you're back here at Virginia beach and you see this opportunity and I'm really excited to watch first landing seafood company take shape because, uh, you can take all everything that you've learned over the course of however many years, I mean several, several years doing this and uh, make something super cool. So what was it about this area that, uh, or, or this opportunity that first brought to light uh, First Landing Seafood?
2: Well, uh, maybe because I know you have a lot of business startup kind of people, you know, listeners, I'll, I'll maybe give a little context. So even though I'm professionally a venture capitalist and I've been in tech and, you know, a bunch of tech hubs around the world for almost 20 years now. I'm from, you know, born and raised in Virginia Beach. And I grew up doing the same stuff probably a lot of us did from people in this area, which was, hey, Mother Nature matters. We're all super grateful and lucky to be in this region. So doing the beach cleanups, you know, learning about how you build living shorelines, how do you protect the environment where we're from and, and this thing that's so important to our lifestyle. Obviously, Hampton Roads and water are synonymous. So... This business is is kind of a couple of, you know, fold or, or dimensions for me. It was a way to kind of get back to my roots as a kid and, and really realize that, you know, I even studied marine biology at William & Mary. As an undergrad, I ended up shifting into business when I realized that you actually had to do a lot of science. You don't get to just surf and play with dolphins and stuff when you're a marine biologist. So I ended up going into business. It was far easier. Um But it was really kind of a cool way to reconnect with this place that I called home for the first 22 years of my life and then also find a way to leverage the almost two decades of business experience that I've had and kind of bring those two things together. So um, really, it, it was probably something I always subconsciously knew that I wanted to do. But I think some of the exposure and experience I was fortunate enough to get in you know my early years, like seven, eight, 10, 12, 15 years old, my uncle, my grandfather, um, my brothers, my dad, we they, they all kind of got us into this whole oyster thing. you know they realized that it was important it was part of Linhave River now, Chesapeake Bay Foundation. They said, hey we need to get oysters back into this you know population into the Linhave River because it was contaminated And one of the best ways to do that is just grow back, what we used to have which is this amazing oyster population that was decimated and overfished and you know killed with disease and all this other stuff and pollution so we my uncle and my cousins got into this business almost you know 20 years ago and they did different elements of it but i think taking my experience and my brother's experience i got excited um over the fourth of july weekend two years ago during COVID when we were all home we do that every year anyways but it was this kind of moment that COVID let us sort of take a step back and and think about well we're all kind of back in the States. Again, we're all nearby. Like, what do we want to do? And this is such a cool opportunity to say, Hey, like downturns, great time to start businesses, um, which I'm sure you all have talked about in other, uh, other podcasts. Um, This is something I was always excited about. You know, I was fortunate enough. We had raised a bunch of capital at break. I was able to offload some of my day-to-day operational, you know, um, requirements in my venture capital firm. And my Luckily enough, my uncle and my cousins had not sold, you know, the old business in terms of the leases and the barges and all the gear that it takes to do this type of business. So, hairbrained idea over some beers and Fourth of July with my brothers, and uh, voila, a new business was born.
1: That's awesome. What? A lot of good things happen over beer. That is true. That is true. What? What are the barriers to entry to get into something like this? I mean, like what? What you mentioned barges. What? What do you need? Do you? Do you need to have a piece of land that is? waterfront or is it just anybody can go and is it do whatever what's this is actually
2: about that this is really interesting this is one of the hardest things for me and one of my biggest passions is to try to reduce what I think is I'm not going to say it totally but I think it's like a nearly impossible business to start which is unfortunate it didn't hmm. used to be that way it used to be That if you were in Newport News or Hampton, they had all these open wild oyster grounds that you could apply for a license. They're run by the state. You can just go out with your boat and your buddy or whoever and tong up and bring up oysters. You had a certain kind of like fishing, right? Like anyone can go out and go get fish. So you used to be able to do that. But that's not really the way it works, you know, generally speaking. Now you have to have your own lease from the state, which are very, very hard to get. And most people sit on those, so they buy them and then they sit in them for decades or generations. And there isn't a lot of recourse, even if they're not using it to produce oysters, which is the whole goal. You can't really like challenge someone and say, hey, your family's been sitting on this lease for 10 years. You're not producing enough oysters and like get the state to like take it away from them or give it to someone who actively wants to participate and help grow you know, the oyster population. So that's the first barrier is you have to have the lease and then you have so much other stuff. I mean, how do you get your boats in the water? You know, you have to have a place to get boats in the water. And if you go to a lot of locations, the the slips, like the place where you park your boats, they're all taken and there's wait lists usually for years and years and years. So then you have to go to a public slip, which means you have to put your boat on a trailer in and out every day. That's a crazy amount of time. And you have to touch your oysters pretty often. And then, you know, in the summer times, it gets backed up. Now the, you know, how do you get your boats in and out and you're not wasting half a day waiting in line for all the other boats to get in and out. Then you have to buy the cages because the oysters aren't there. You have to bring your own oysters. So you have to get seed from a hatchery, which there are hatcheries all over the Chesapeake. I think there's probably 10 or 12 now. And you buy them and then you have to put them in bags or cages and you have to grow them and then you have to go touch them probably somewhere between kind of four to six times a year. At least you have to touch every oyster. Meaning you got to pick it up. We have a crane on a boat. You have to have this huge trash pump. You got to spray them off. You got to turn them over. We call them um, husbandry. Wow. You got to put them through a tumbler to sort them by size. You got to re-put them in down the bottom. Like it's a, it's a, it's a whole process, man. It's what what
1: what water depth are we talking here?
2: So we're lucky that we have a pretty shallow lease. So ours can go anywhere from sort of you know two feet to eight feet, and, and that's pretty ideal because. If something really happens, which happens often, like we kind of we require all of our employees like they have to have their own wetsuits because you have to get overboard, you know, pretty regularly. Not every day, but it's often where like a line will break or something's wrong and you got to jump off and go down and figure out what's going on. So it's actually um, it's really lucky um, because also one thing that you may not know is that the most food, the best food for oysters is in the first 12 inches of the water column. So you want your oysters to be as close to like the best food source as possible because all they do is just eat all day long, like eat, grow, and poop. That's all they do. <laughs> and so, um, so you want to put them near food as often as possible. So if you have like oysters down thirty feet and there's not a lot of sunlight, it's not going to mm. get them, right. They still will grow, but they're not going to grow as fast or, or maybe in as uh, high volume.
0: Hmm. Man, that is what. What? When was the last time? you know, obviously you've been doing Brink for a long time. When was the last time you actually like got in and, and worked this style in, in a business? Because it's different than running the other firm. When, when, when was the last time you actually got your hands dirty or wet it, into a business like this? And, and oh. what were the, what are some of the challenges of, of trying to, get back into that, you know, obviously you coach and mentor and, 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 and foster and, and provide capital to a, to a ton of companies, but to get in there, the nitty gritty, I mean, that's a completely different game.
2: Yeah. Well, that's actually, I think part of the allure, frankly speaking, is, you know, I was the COO and co-founder of Brink for almost eight years. And, you know, the difference And you guys have been probably been through this, you know, you can use Peter Thiel, zero to one, one to 10, or, you know, 10 to a hundred, you can come up with that, or you can use um, Steve Blank's, you know, like uh, search bill grow, like whatever framework you use to think through the phases of a business. And I think until we got to Brink, which is you know now almost 100 staff we raised $210 million this year, Series B, like so, so much is going on. We have almost 300 portfolio companies. Like that that's a big operation now. It's so different than just the early days when we had no idea what we were doing, right? <laughs> we were making it up and trying to figure out the pattern through, you know, or see the signal through the noise, right? And I think... I had potentially forgotten a little bit that I really like that stage and it's obviously why I invest in a lot of early stage companies and help those founders. I like digging through the mess. I certainly think I knew about myself, but didn't probably have the ability to test it until we got to Brink to be such a large business that I really am not as good, as good at, obviously, and also maybe don't like as much the kind of middle and later stage of businesses. Um, so, so that, that was really helpful to learn because I think I found myself. And I'm, we were just playing around with this during the, you know, COVID days, right? It's not like this is a, a crazy amount of my time, but it was it was fun in a way that you know I, I kind of remember the earlier days of, of uh, building Brink Plus. Whenever we make new investments into into founders, where I really support the investment, uh, it, it just kind of sparks that creativity, you know, that you only get from the really early days of a business. But so I probably say like. 2014 to 2017-18 with Brink were like really early days. So it, it probably been like three or four years since I've been in the, in the weeds. But then before Brink, it was um, probably at Intercom when I left Apple. Uh, and then before that it was Apple. So I've kind of I've probably been in this role formally like four times, five times, you know, like early stage, like really helping with operations and obviously through the um, investing, obviously hundreds of times, you know, beyond that. Yeah. But like, that's not nearly as deep, right? As like, you're really responsible for it.
0: I think it's pretty common and maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but just to piggyback off of that, like most people, most founders who start a business at some point, that that role is not the right fit for them anymore, and they bring someone else in. I mean, it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying. And so it's it's kind of surprising that some of the biggest companies in the world, you know, you think about Facebook and Zucks, it's just like. He's, he's gone from what zero to that's, fifty thousand employees, and he still super, seems super to be okay in it. Like it's super, super, rare. rare. Or,
2: yeah, well, I think the, the question of whether he's the right person for that is a whole nother topic entirely. <laughs> yeah. But, but, well, but I think no, it it it, it is rare for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's. Do you see uh, when you get out in the water? Do you see that? Uh, is it is it tough, tough work, or is it therapeutic? Uh, I mean, there, to me, like, man, after one when you're sitting in front of a computer screen all day long, man, it gets. I just, sometimes I really enjoy just going out to mow the lawn or, or something like that, just to let my mind wander. And, and yeah,
2: I mean, this its it's funny you say that there's a joke, at least in Silicon Valley where, and you've probably seen this where, you know, operators build these businesses, they make a bunch of money, they do their thing in the world, and then they go back to the land. Right. In San Francisco, that means usually, you know, buy a winery, right. And you build, you know, you go get your hands dirty. And so I don't know who it was. It was kind of giving me, giving me a hard time when they heard I got into the oyster business. They were like, Oh, so you're just doing that like 20 years early. Right. You know, and, and I think that it, but it was, it was so much true. I think, I think it was, I sort of naturally found myself in the middle of winter, like riding my beach cruiser, you know, down to the 64th street state park entrance and like staring out at the water and like sending video reports back to my brothers of like, today would definitely be a bad day. Right. It's like snowing, it's freezing. This would be a bad day to be on the water. Um, but I found myself just naturally wanting to be out there. And so, especially during COVID, I think it was really tough because we we're all cooped up. So it was really nice to like be out on the water, even in the, in the tough conditions. But for the team, I can tell you, you know, and I'm obviously not operational daily, but um, for the team, it was, it, I think it's both. I mean, it can be really tough. I mean, you're talking like head to toe, mud, really like sun baking down on you or freezing cold, windy, whipping conditions, the boats rocking back and forth, like it it gets, um, it can be, and it's a lot of heavy lifting. Like it's a lot of physically heavy lifting. The gear is super heavy. The oysters get really heavy. Um, that's why we have winches like, and and like, you know, towing systems that bring them out of the water and they're so heavy. Like we've probably broken six of those things and they're like the wires will just eat through metal. Like it's, it's the gears is pretty heavy stuff. Um, for, for a lot of it. And so I think it's both physical, but I really, I can't tell you like, you know, my brothers and our employees, they message me all the time and they're just like, my commute to work is I get on the boat and I take a right <laughs> and like, you know, they cruise out to this beautiful place and a lot of the times they're out there by themselves, almost their whole shift and they're out with mother nature all day. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's both. And I, and I think for me, it's been very, very, very nice to kind of, you know, pull out of my digital investment, super tech heavy world and really think about this business, but also applying those skills and those experiences to kind of an old business, which I actually think has been also, you know, it's been met with a lot of challenges um, in terms of challenging how some of the business, the policy, the local kind of regulators, all this other stuff. But it's definitely, I, I would I would highly uh, suggest that, you know, founders are kind of moving on to their next thing or realize it's time to do something different. Like sometimes maybe looking at completely divergent or different industries or opportunities versus just another e business or whatever you do, Um is actually really fun. It's a way to challenge your mind and your operational skills and business skills in a different way, but also potentially help, you know, evolve and bring up a really important other industry or older industry, right? And into the future. So I think there's some other ways to look at that.
0: Is there a, a, uh, you're so uh, immersed in in the tech side of things. Is is there, what are some of the examples of, of kind of implementing new tech into something that, has been so you know get your hands dirty type of thing i mean I is, it, is it new machinery in there like what what is it coming in there
2: I'll, I'll tell you it's weird because we'd invested in a bunch of climate companies and a lot of food and and kind of beverage businesses so we're one of the world's largest at Brank, one of the world's largest early stage food tech investors so i already had my fingers kind of in a, in a couple of worlds but man there's some really cool tech and, and so it's it's all the way down to like the really bare bones normal stuff like the cages that we have based on the permit that you're allowed to, that you get from the state allows you to use the first 12 inches of the water column from the ground up. Now, the best food we talked about earlier is from 12 inches top down. So that's, that doesn't make a ton of sense, right? But people want to be able to run their boats by. They don't want to worry about stuff that's floating. They, you know, they want to know that it's, it's, it's always 12 inches off the bottom and they don't have to get concerned about it. But there's new technology. So we all use bottom cages is what we call them. That's like a standard, probably been around since the 60s or whatever probably longer. But floating cages are essentially the same cage, but with two huge buoys on top that float on the top of the water. So now the oysters get the best food supply all the time. They naturally move versus sit where they at the bottom where Mm. they never move. So essentially they're tumbling and they're actually creating a better shaped shell. So they're actually more premium and they clean themselves. So you don't have to pick them up and clean them. All you have to do is go by every month or so, you flip it over and then the sunlight bakes all the dirt and then you just flip it back over and that's all you got to do versus what we have to do now is we have to go over, hook it on a winch, drag it up over on the top, open it up, spray it with the thing, open up the next part, spray it with the thing, put it back together. It's like this whole process, right? And so so that's the biggest battle that I've had with the business is I've been trying to help my brothers and even my uncle and others that have gotten really motivated to say, look, this technology has existed for a really long time and we are really behind The Times here, you know, we are being forced and hamstrung to use really old technology. And the only people that are complaining about it are really a couple of very rich people. And so you've got these people that are kind of like, you know, talking to their senators and doing all this kind of behind the scenes stuff um, and they're stopping you know uh, uh it's half of the virginia beach population it's over 250,000 people live on the london river which is you know half of the city which is the, sec- the largest city in, in virginia um and so it's kind of crazy that like we're, we're having to use like t- technology from the 1960s and so i've been in this like really long learning how this works like political battle trying to figure this out but that's just like to get us up to like current times right there's actually some crazy cool technology um I don't know if anyone knows the Rise Resilience program in Norfolk, which, uh, you know, my venture firm, Brink, has been powering the last couple of years. We have been uh, looking at a lot of their portfolio companies and beyond. And there's some companies like this group called Natrix out of the Research Triangle in North Carolina. They use these huge 3D printing technologies, like they're essentially like a 3D printer in a cargo, you know, cargo container, and they ship it to a location. And they 3D print oyster rock, which is essentially the foundation of an oyster reef. And they do it in this like massively new way where like the surface area is like 10 times larger than any other surface area per size. It's 10 times cheaper. Um, it doesn't mean they usually have to like dig up concrete and bring it in to actually make uh, a bottom of an oyster reef, which is bad for the environment. You have all these trucks bringing this stuff in, all these barges versus you just drop in this 3D printer. And you print all the substrate that you need and it leaves it disappears and then all the oysters naturally hit that and then grow these amazing oyster reefs like that that's a really cool one but there's also some stuff like there's a really cool company out of boston i've been talking to that does deep water floating oyster uh uh like solar powered uh like like growing operations so they put them out in the harbor like far out like in the deep water but still you it still floats on top, so mm. you're still getting food right and they have like these conveyor belt systems that go vertically down into the depths of the water, but they keep moving the oysters up and down. So they're getting the food supply and it's all solar power. It's like a floating bar. So essentially you can move them out to sea where they don't have to be near people's homes or in the recreational waterways. So, I mean, I can go on and on. There is, there is so much cool stuff happening um, just in this particular space that I never would have seen before. And, and, and it even goes down to like, uh, I'm looking at a venture deal right now, a series A for this group called blue trace where they do or oyster tracker. It's like, how do you track and trace for food safety, all seafood? That's so like handwritten and paper. I mean, it's crazy. Like the whole industry hasn't really been innovated upon in a long time. I think there's a little bit of a Renaissance going on, you know, in this space. And it's really exciting. Like it's funny because it scratches both, both parts of my brain. Right. And <laughs> just happen to be right time, right place.
1: That's super cool. Uh, Question, episode 55, I was just looking up, we had uh, Marshall from Hubs uh, Peanuts, hmm. and he, he, um, he's from the uh, Franklin, Franklin, Virginia area, area. Yeah. and he dubbed this area as the Napa Valley for peanuts. Huh. Uh, so is the Chesapeake Bay, is, this, is the Chesapeake Bay like the Napa Valley for oysters,
2: we're we're really lucky there's so the reason we're called first landing seafood is because this is where you may or may not know this or or your listeners but this is where like cape henry like where the first landing state park is right at the kind of end of you know shore drive and and the north end of virginia beach like this is where the settlers found america so like when i went growing up on 82nd 83rd street like you know i used to go to church uh in this um Army base, uh, the the base right there, Fort Story, and that's like you know where the settlers like first hit literally America, which is crazy. But what they did is they walked through the forest there, and then they found oysters and uh, fresh strawberries. So the Native Americans were eating, and they ran away. They were scared, never seen white people, right? And they let they were sitting there just having fresh strawberries from Virginia Beach, and they were having uh, Lynn Haven oysters. And it was April 26, sixteen oh seven, and so. Crazy story, like we we said, first landing seafood because we wanted to kind of pay homage back to that. Um, but then also realizing that this oyster is literally America's first oyster, and it's exciting because it was really famous back in the day. The Queen of England used to demand them by name. They called that she called them Linhaven Fancies, which is essentially a way to describe like the highest quality of something. So Linhaven Fancies were, you know, we have we have historical references. We can see. Uh, Napoleon ate these and demanded them when he was in Norfolk, Virginia, like crazy. There's all this awesome kind of history stuff, but that's just like, Hey, it happens to be like in time, a really important oyster. But from a flavor perspective, one thing that we're really fortunate about, it was two things is we have one of the longest growing cycles in the entire world, which is essentially how do you find like a, like a longitude whereby you have enough warm time where they grow, but don't get too hot where they turn off and stop growing. And also not too cold where they don't go through the spawning and growth season and then also turn off. So there's this really kind of like small band of temperature where oysters grow really well. And we're lucky in this region that not only do we have the, like, more days of the year than almost anywhere else. So we have more days our oysters can grow, meaning we can turn over the, the crops faster. But we also have a really fortunate location because the Linhaven River is the closest part of the Chesapeake Bay to the Atlantic. And so the water just flows in twice a day. So you get that really high salinity, which a lot of people love in oysters. But you don't get something that's like a seaside that's actually in the ocean, which is so salty. It's like almost you know too much, right? Like you taste it, you're like, oh, it's too much salt. But you don't go up into the Chesapeake, like up towards Maryland, where there's so much freshwater influence, where it kind of tastes like a freshwater, more earthy oyster, which most people don't really like that. So we're really lucky that we get both the – they call, call it like the, the salty and the sweet – that you that you really want like a perfect balance and you also Mm. have most days of the year that you can actually grow so we're in this really kind of premium so fortunate location um so yeah it's it's a the land oyster is a globally known unfortunately hasn't been brought back to its level that we want to take it to that's one of our goals but it, it is like one of the best oyster growing locations you could possibly ask for
0: what about the distribution from a sales perspective? I mean, we talked a lot about the growing and and, and the atmosphere of, of, of where it is, but is it easy to sell an oyster to, to someone? I mean, do you go direct to the consumer? Do you go to other restaurants? Like, how do you, what's the distribution plan of this to, to get it to be to that peak of, of being, you know, the world's greatest oyster?
2: Well, I think I was also lucky because my time at Brink, we'd invested in a lot of food companies. You know, we probably, by the time my brothers and I had this idea, you know, at Brink, we would probably invested in 40 or 50 food companies. And and all those food tech companies that we've invested in have all the same challenges that our IoT drones, robotics, med tech companies had before, which is supply chain. So you had to learn everything from the physical inputs all the way to the end distribution. And so fortunately enough, I had eight years learning this, but I didn't know the place. And so, you know, you kind of see people at farmer's markets. So that's sort of where my mind went first. I was lucky enough to you know, talk to other people that had been before me and, and there was sort of like a kind of black and white, you know, set up here, which is, you know, if you're going to be small and boutique, which you can be, which I have no desire to ever do anything at small and boutique, you know, generally speaking, but it was, uh, you could do kind of knock on a couple of doors, set up at the farmer's market, you'll be fine. But if you want to do anything that's really scalable then it's all gonna be about wholesale and restaurants. And so we do both. We're about to launch the Lynn Haven Fancies, which is the brand we're talking about now, uh, next week with Cisco. So they'll be the exclusive provider uh, in the whole world of Lynn Haven Fancies. And so that's like the biggest, you know, food distributor in the planet. But we also use local distributors. Uh, We also go direct to different restaurants ourselves. And we also do direct to consumers on Fridays at the Brownies Marina and also at the uh, Saturday at a farmer's market, um, the Shore Drive farmer's market. So we do the whole thing. We don't do direct to consumer in terms of they can go to our website and we ship them. We may get there at some point, like some some of the big players in our world, but then you have to get into like you know, dried ice and FedEx overnight. And, and, and like, there's a whole level to that game that I have, you know, terrified of and don't really want to know right now. Um, but some, some people do that and that that's kind of crazy. Like that's a whole nother situation, but yeah, you you kind of have to do all, but I think one thing to remember, no matter what business you're in is there's going to be certain, like and, and whatever angle you're taking as an investor, someone who's really tech oriented is you have to appreciate the kind of industry norms and the realities of that type of company. And this is something that, you know, I've caught myself with my brothers kind of brainstorming saying, "Hey, like we have to remember that we're a commodities business. You know, we're salt, we're wheat, we're peanuts, right? And it may be a little higher end, but it's 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 the same kind of industry and we have to appreciate like we're not going to change the whole industry, so we have to decide kind of where we press the boundary." And, and what we can really control and what do you just have to kind of take for the way it is and just use the rails that were already built before you.
1: What, uh, have you done, uh, like a, a soft, soft launch, uh, testing the product and all that stuff. I'm, I'm sure that the feedback has been super stellar uh, to this point. Yeah, we did.
2: We, so we started selling, um, last thing. So Thanksgiving, so about eight months ago, which was just like, you know, we were all home for still, we were all, my brother moved back. My middle brother can't come three days a week. Like I was still living in Virginia with my family for COVID. And so we started testing just direct and yeah, we've been kind of slowly creeping our way out, you know, with, with our first product, which is, we're calling the Lynn Haven legacies, which is an homage to our father and our grandfather and our uncles, everyone that came before us. And so that's like, we make a joke. It's, uh, it's the oyster that your your daddy's daddy and your daddy's daddy's daddy knew and loved. Right. It's like what made the Lynn Haven oyster, you know, you know, known, but this next product that we're launching next week with Cisco and going out to you know a lot of other restaurants, the fancies like that's something no one's ever seen before. You know, that's like a global exacting standard, like could be a, a, a like a three Michelin star restaurant type of oyster, and so that's uh, that's brand new. And, and yeah, we are getting some very positive feedback, and a lot of people are excited just to have a clean, consistent, delicious, living oyster. Because if you go, I was shocked. I mean, as an oyster lover and a local, I went around. It'd be one in 10, maybe, restaurants were carrying them. They're all coming from Richmond or uh, the Rappahannock or the Eastern Shore. And I was like, wait, we have oysters literally right here. You go, like, drive over the water on the, like, it's, it's everywhere you look. Like, why can't we have our own oysters from our own town? It made no sense.
1: Why, and so why do you we'll, think that was?
2: Uh, there's a variety of reasons. I think that there's a lot of fighting on the Lindhaven River because there's a lot of wealthy people that don't want industry. So again, those barriers are really high. And so you have to really be able to like stomach and financially be able to handle and get through those barriers. But then on the other side, I also think it's um, a lot of the local kind of, you know, the people that were the first like farmers and crabbers and and fishermen and all this other stuff, they, this isn't really their goal either. Right. Like they kind of like the, the kind of concept of this type of farming is like, I want to do something i don't want anyone up in my crap i want to be by myself in the water i'm not trying to do anything i just want to you know make enough money hang out at five get some beers and go to go back to it tomorrow kind of thing right like they're not thinking about building some big scalable things so i think they've sort of suppressed that industry and and so yeah it's actually been hard honestly like i i i say you know both sides of my mouth like i'm so grateful that all these people did all this hard work to clean up the river make it possible for oyster you know farming again well, the other side of my, my mouth or my brain is like, but then all of you kind of put in a bunch of barriers that make this, makes this really hard for new people to come in and try to help grow this industry because you've artificially like suppressed it on purpose, you know? And so it's actually been very challenging and it still is today to kind of like tear through these barriers and get us back to a point where like people really are used to getting lean heavy oysters. They expect it. They demand it. Like we're definitely not there yet. Yeah, so how do you really combat that? Me?
0: Yeah. Yes. So, 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 so people live on that waterway right there. They don't want it there. Can't blame them there. If I was living there, I wouldn't want you there either. Probably. Right. Uh, Two, the river's only so big. Right. So how do you like with those two, and then by the way, there's also people that um, are rich and don't want to innovate there as well, which is a completely different, you know, that. How do you combat that and actually grow into the business that you want to knowing that there are some pretty big barriers and some of those barriers you really can't challenge because the river is only so big. How do you
2: become the juggernaut that you we, want to be? We, our lease that we bought was like tucked away. It's the furthest distance from any home. So we're you know almost uh, a full mile from the next home. And so we always kind of equate that to saying like anyone that complains, which some people do, are like, I appreciate that. We are literally five and a half aircraft carriers from your home. Try <laughs> <laughs> We try to put it like in context, right? Um, and we're always open to conversation. Yeah, you know, And we're certainly like trying to be like massively positive stewards on the water. We're, we're definitely the largest team that's consistently on the Lynnhaven River working every single day. Like there's no one like us that's that's working every single day on the Lynnhaven. So I think that um, there's certainly some things that you can't, Resolve, but I think you could also put it in context. You can kind of, kind of massage that narrative, right? So if you've got seven, eight, 10 people that are frustrated or don't want something, and you look at the list of grievances and they're not, you know, they're not super logical, uh, but then you say, okay, we're benefiting 249,990 other citizens on this waterway. By cleaning the water, creating more you know habitat, sequestering nitrogen, sequestering phosphorus, tamping down wave action so it doesn't erode the shoreline, all the positive things, and we're hiring jobs, paying taxes, bringing back a new product that people could be proud of in this er- area. You know, you can essentially market your way out of it if you are patient enough and able to, you know, use the right channels. Right? Like I've never done politics before. I've been learning this. It's not been the most fun thing I've ever learned, but you know, new things are new things, so I don't mind learning some of it. Um, but it's a process you gotta be very patient and I think the problem with that is you gotta have money because a normal farmer wouldn't have the time to wait this long, right? And like and fight this. And so I think that's that's one of the biggest things that irritates me. And what we're trying to do at first landing seafood, like I've made all of my you know trademark agreements already have license agreements attached to them. Like I want people to build on our foundation. Like that's one of my day one priorities was how do we make how do we bring more people into the industry? How do we get more people to support doing this and learning it's a, it's a, it's a business that they can build themselves. It's a potential career because it's fun. It's great for the environment. It can be very profitable at least can make you a very good lifestyle. You know, if you just want to be a one person show or a two person show, but the barriers are, are, I think pretty insurmountable for like, you know, Joe or Karen on their boat going out, trying to start an oyster business. Right. So that, that's one of my sort of, you know, chips on my shoulder is that I'm going to make it somehow where it's easier for others to get into this business. Um, and I'm also talking with other people around the Chesapeake to figure out, uh, and I'm also working with William & Mary's uh, Integrative Institute of Conservation, the IIC, to kind of think of like what new business models, what things can we do to support more farmers to get into this or people that may not think about it because it's a fun lifestyle, man. Like, you it's incredible to see the smiles. Like, I have, I have other friends and family that know that we're on the water and they say they're like, to see your brothers and the employees going by, like you wouldn't believe the smiles on these guys' faces every day when they go out to work. They're they're just having a blast. So um, yeah, there are barriers. So I think it's about patience. Unfortunately, right now it's about capital, and that's definitely something that I'm you know also trying to work on.
0: Real, real quick, so I don't know how to read a map, uh, but the Lindhaven <laughs> <laughs> so the Lynn-Haver River, and then I think you talked about like 64th Street into the Narrows and all that. Is that all considered? the Lynn Haven. So all that waterways, like broad Bay yeah. and all that is, is that so technically
2: the Lynn Haven? That's right. that's right. And so, so broad, broad Bay is where we are. So if you're, if you're looking off the 64th street, boat ramp, we are all the oyster, all the water to the right for like a hundred acres is ours. So a lot of that beautiful that's on the, like the hiking paths and trails that that's, yeah, yeah. All, our, that's all our area. Yeah.
1: Got it. Okay. Interesting. I, I have a question in terms of like uh when you, when, as you scale, I mean, is it, is it, it, it at least initially, is it going to be just a supply and demand issue? Uh, in terms of, I mean, you have world class product. Cisco is getting ready to launch, and then all of a sudden, that like the the world just wants it, and uh, you know be, how
2: I would love that to happen.
1: I it, Well, I have. I mean, I'm I'm confident that it's going to. Uh, what happens? I mean, do you have to? Is it finding? new locations, you know, but it, I mean, but the Linhaven Haven river is really, really like, that's like the secret sauce, so to speak.
2: So you don't have to worry about the space for growing. You can get like, we'll never use the acreage we already have. There's no Interesting. way. Like we can never outgrow the current space. Like that, that would be like the biggest ocean okay. business in America or something, right? <laughs> like, <and> so <laughs> so maybe, I mean, that'd be kind of crazy. Um, but no, so so that that's not really the challenge. It's really a demand issue. Um, And then also the capital Mm. to then invest in the infrastructure to continue to grow that supply. Right now, we're lucky that we're kind of ahead of ourselves on purpose. And luckily enough, my oldest brother, uh, Bruce, who's who's sort of our day-to-day lead, he's our veteran-owned and veteran-led part of our business, um, is – is a like he was essentially like you know 30 years or whatever as like a, a um 06 in the army and he's at, like legit maritime logistics, like this is his expertise, right? So I never worry about that stuff happening. It's like, cool, he'll grow as many oysters as we could sell, right? <laughs> and so, um, it, but 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 it does it does become an issue in terms of like how do you manage that? Like that's the next level, right? Like we're going day one, my brothers and I kind of said like we, we had learned from other people that you can be small, but you can't be medium because mm-hmm. medium you get stuck in these like problems on both sides like it's either big or small. And so in this particular industry because you don't get like you have too much pressure on both sides when you're in the medium kind of category of size like you're having to spend all this capex right to in- invest in the infrastructure but you're not big enough to kind of break through and get the money back fast enough. So it's like cool day one we're thinking about scale. Now we couldn't invest in all of that day one but we were already testing and thinking through and this is why my brother you know is the leader of the company is He is like, we need to be thinking about full crazy scale and hopefully we ever get there, but we need to start testing as much as we can day one and keep adding on layers of that, even when we're not ready for it so that we don't break when we do get there. So yeah, it's definitely, it's, but it's definitely a demand problem. And one thing I tell people, even like, you know, you two that may not eat oysters is, you know, people are asking what can we do? Because certainly most people are not going to be the ones dropping off Friday and, and Saturday directly getting 100 or 50 oysters and shucking them at home by hand. Like that's not your normal customer. But the number one thing you can do to support this industry and support the environment is actually buy oysters. Like that's it. Like you don't have to go start an industry, you know, save your shells and do all this restoration stuff. Like there's plenty of us that do this work, but we need more demand. Like, like you were talking about at the beginning of the show, you know, if you're from you know, Denver or, or Dallas or wherever you might be, or Buffalo, you may not, it might not be normal, right. To see oysters on the menu. So the best thing we can do is actually help increase the education and availability of oysters, because the more that happens, the more oyster farmers like us will start and the more oysters that go in the water, which is the point. So you don't really need a bunch more not-for-profits. You don't need a bunch more, um, you know, like, like big kind of government type stuff, right. Or like huge things. You just need like consumers to buy oysters. That will mean there'll be a demand signal for people like us. And there'll be more farmers that get involved. And that means more oysters and the environment gets better. Like my, my uncle always jokes, he goes, just make a bunch of money and the river will be great. (laughs) He was like, because that means that you put a lot of oysters in, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, can you touch on the, it has such a positive environmental effect. Can you, can you share with us, you know, what, the positivity that comes with oyster farming?
2: It's, it is really kind of crazy. And like, this is something that as a food tech investor at Brink, you know, we've really struggled like with where do you invest because you can make, you know, supply chains more efficient, but that doesn't maybe solve, let's say like protein, you know, because you have to, you know, the, the ultimate thing will probably be that you have to grow protein in the lab and do cellular agriculture. And so when you look at the entire food supply as like a, as a, you know, problem, man, almost every crop is like really tough, right? Like it takes a lot of water, a lot of chemicals, a lot of space that humans need. It like, you know, makes runoff problems as pesticides. Like there's, there are very few things, you know, animal or plant that are net, like net, net, double bottom line type mentality. Good for the environment, you know, like it's good for humans, but you know, if we didn't have to eat wheat, we wouldn't like the world wouldn't make it. Right. Um, And so like, it doesn't like mother nature doesn't need a bunch of cornfields, right. Or wheat fields. Um, And so it's kind of crazy. It's like, you know, we, we sort of use this like a, a, so there's 300,000 year old massively efficient and effective kind of plant in the ocean that does a couple of things. Like the first bullet point you hear sales points, it can filter up to 50 gallons uh, of water a day because that's all they do is they're filter feeders, right? They just, you know, feed through the water, eat what they need and they're filtering and cleaning the water. So if you had like a a uh, little, you know, aquarium in front of you, like a normal fish tank at your house, and you put a bunch of dirty water, like salt water in it, and it was all murky and you couldn't see anything. You drop five voices in there and like 30 minutes will be completely clear or an hour. It's crazy. Um wow. it's very, very powerful. But but that's just kind of like the top sales point. As you get further in and for more sophisticated, you know, climate investors or people that are care about the climate, some really interesting other things like uh, one is it sequesters phosphorus really well. It sequesters nitrogen really well, both in the poop, but also in the meat and the shell. Um, it creates these like amazing environments, the reefs, for other uh, aquatic life. And if you look at any kind of new restoration project, you're going to see two things. You're going to see oysters and seagrass. Once like a restoration company will come in and help that environment, they know that if they do that, everything else will come. Like so, recently we we're doing an article with Linham River now because we're starting to see seahorses or seahorses in our cages, and they were so excited. They're like, "Oh, they're coming back! Finally!" It's like as indicator that like the environment is getting to a place where it needs to be, right? And, and it also but it always comes back to like these crazy little crustacean thing. You, know, you just kind of like can kind of survive anything, right? And you just put them in the water, and they start growing. And that over time, the more of them that are in the water, the better everything gets. And and one thing that we've noticed so clearly as you take those big mega yachts that come through the waterway and all the rich people's boats when you look at like how the water just like the waves smash the the shoreline which is you know obviously really bad when you have homes or just like our natural shoreline in in first landing state park um or first uh yeah you see like a couple things happen like our cages and then the the reefs that we build like pro bono just for like we do reef restoration and build our own oyster reefs just to, to help you know increase the population help the environment it's amazing like that wave comes in and then it hits the cages where the oysters are the reefs and she goes and just flat there are no waves that get past hmm. those and so it protects all the land that's behind it so yeah i, I don't know i have i've yet to tr- to actually come across a downside of oysters and i know this because we calculate this at brink when we look at like all the different types of carbon or carbon equivalents of all the types of investments or um, all the types of like different uh, elements of like the shipping and supply chain. Like, obviously like, you know, there are elements of of the total carbon footprint of your business, but yeah, I I honestly, I don't know if there's a better, more environmentally friendly you know, crop in the whole world.
0: Well, I mean a, a bad case is that I can't eat them.
2: True. True. But you can still support, you can still support them.
0: Yeah, I guess I could buy oysters and then hand them off to someone.
2: Yeah, gift them. Exactly. I'll get a gift card up on our website so you can, you can give gift cards. <laughs>
0: All right. So it's interesting that you, you we talked about uh, gifts. Tim brought up um, Marshall from Hubs. A lot of people, when they're buying kind of gifts for clients or customers or uh, any, any, any time there's a gift basket, a lot of times people don't buy local. They buy from somewhere else, uh, it, whether that be swag, actual food products, anything like that, like it, and I'm sure that actually happens in every city across the country, but is our oysters something that could be like that? And is that, is that something that like, how could people who don't live here support oysters to do stuff like that? Like, like how, like what's your vision on, on that aspect of kind of the gifting aspect or the, what, what did he call that stuff, uh, Tim, the Marshall with with peanuts in, in, in those bags? Is it just oh, gifting? What, yeah, the... the corporate corporate gifting or whatever. Gifting. Yeah, like is, is, well, is, is that well, a way that people can get into it? Like how, how do you envision that?
2: Well, I mean, I think th- there's certainly a perishability to it, and you can get them in shucked uh, pints, which is you know, almost all of that happens during the holiday season because people are making um, – stews they're making uh they're using it for gravies they're using it for stuffings like that that's kind of like a very seasonal type of thing as you get you can see them in like a like a jar you know and you can you can buy a, a pint of shucked oysters or whatever uh we don't we don't do that and that's like a very specific industry because you can farm them out farm them out and then you can bring them to a consumer they can open them themselves you know put them in the grill shuck them whatever you can put them to a restaurant they'll you know prepare them however their customers want them or they can go to a shucking house and, and i don't think we have any shucking houses in hampton roads anymore we may have some in newport news or somewhere but there are some in the eastern shore but most of them have shut down because it's really labor intensive um it's, it's obviously low cost labor it's it's very hard work and it, it's not you know it's a big part in terms of the total amount of oysters because a lot of this happens in the gulf and other areas where it's more like a protein not like a a high-end kind of product, right? It's more just like oysters. <laughs> um, uh, but I think that there could be a real element around supporting the restoration. So certainly I would hope that when we go sell our oysters, you know, eventually hopefully to DC and to um, uh, further up into, you know, Baltimore and, and maybe even to New York and maybe even the West coast, that we can work with local groups that people that are buying there or gifting or whatever there that the restoration work that we tie to all of our consumption because we all want to make sure that we're tying consumption from our consumers to the conservation work that we're doing that hopefully that can be done locally because i think you know the laven oyster or the live fancy we hope that at some point you could be in beijing or wherever you are and you'll know this name and that that oyster will be demanded but Realistically speaking, it's the, the difference about what oysters do versus, and just use the other equivalent, like carbon sequestration, which I've done some research on this. So you can put a, you know, a carbon sequestration you know engine or, or machine anywhere on earth, and it will do the same thing no matter where you put it, right? Like you're getting carbon where carbon is, no matter where. So you can put them all in the North Pole, South Pole, deserts, wherever, wherever it makes sense to put them. You're just taking net carbon out of the atmosphere or carbon equivalents problem with oysters is i can't put you know the goal is 10 billion oysters for the chesapeake you know we're about 3.5 billion so it's a long way to go but i can't put the remaining 6.5 billion oysters in the lynn haven river and actually help the chesapeake that's not how it's going to work the lynn haven would be great but then all the other parts aren't going to be affected it's a much more local benefit mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you have to kind of put them out everywhere and so that's actually one of the things i'm working on with the iic at william and mary is how can Farmers like ourselves that are usually small, you know, family owned businesses. How do we really tie our business models to conservation as fast as and as early as possible when we're small? And then how is that network of farmers then really help kind of grow the, the benefit to the environment in their local areas? And that, that's kind of one of the things that, again, like scratches the other part of my brain is cool. We're going to be a successful family business. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. But the part that gets me really personally motivated, besides being on the water, which is fun, and, and being working with my brothers, which I love, is really about how do I take my business experience and help to work on some of the problems that this industry hasn't solved to have a better environmental impact at scale? And how do I help more people be more inclusive and, and get through those barriers to help this be, like, hopefully a real possible engine for economic growth jobs prosperity, hopefully help Hampton Roads become known for being more of a blue and green economy um, long term. So that's, that's kind of some of the kind of ways that I I look at that. Um, So it's not really necessarily just the oyster, you know, it's kind of like the business model, the environmental impact that you can have. And again, that that, uh, I've learned this through the research that it has to be very, very local, you can't just do it here.
1: Um, How much have you learned about the, this industry, like, uh, from the time that you and your brothers were drinking beer on Thanksgiving and how much did you know before that? I mean, just the amount of knowledge that you have in this area is just, it's fascinating to me. I mean, it's just, are you just a constant learner?
2: Yeah. That, that's probably like some of the best entrepreneurs I know and founders are people that just are, you know, voracious learners. And, and, I, and my wife would laugh. She'd be like, yeah, you don't read anything, which I don't read a lot. I do read when I have to, but i rather watch YouTube or watch talks or talk to people. I learned through communication. Like that's one of my best ways of internalizing. that I say it out loud and teach it back. And that's how I remember it. But um, I, I mean, I, I knew a bit because of my family's been in it, you know, and they kind of had me do it when I was really, really young. Not at this level. I think I think because we had COVID, you know, I had some some additional time because you know I was ramping down my operational role at Brink at that time, uh, and COVID had us all locked down. So I had a lot of time to kind of just scratch on this a bit, right, and start asking more questions. And and I think the the nice part also is you probably know this, but there's something really beneficial about having like the child's mind you know, because I'm coming in as an outsider. I don't know that much. So mm-hmm. I don't have all the kind of hang-ups and stuff that the initial people had or the people who have been doing it their whole career. So that's kind of some of the feedback I get from a lot of the people in the conservation world or, you know, Chesapeake Bay Foundation or the policymakers or the current farmers or whatever. They, they're always kind of like really impressed because the way that I think about it and the questions I'm asking and the kind of things I'm coming up with, but it's just because it's, it, it, it's an outsider. That's all it is, right? It's not that I'm I'm taking stuff I've learned in other businesses and just applying them here. It's not novel, you know, most of it. So um, yeah, I think, I think you just got to be excited and, and, you know, always be open to learning. So.
1: And well, the part of and the second part, uh reason why I asked that question is because, I mean, that, I love this episode that we're doing today, because if, if you're a founder, you need to watch this because you're like the, the, the Jedi coming back into the fight, starting a business. I mean, you, One of the uh, the phrase that we've used many, many times over the past episodes is reps. And you've Mm -hmm. had so many reps in building a business. And and then to see you come back into the game, not that you were retired, but you're now doing it. And I mean, and, and we always talk about you bet on the jockey, not the horse. And listening to you talk today for the last 53 minutes, I mean, you know, you're a jockey that somebody would want to bet on. So it's just like you are leading by example and it's super cool. And I, I hope that all the founders listen to this.
2: Well, one thing I'll also say that's been fun for me is you, you all know, as you've talked a lot over the last couple of years since I've been back in Virginia, but I've I've also taken probably 200 plus meetings now with just people in the innovation ecosystem and kind of tech, early stage, everything else like across the state. And so one thing that I've been really doing now is I took that work that I was doing for Brank and, and looking at models that we can, you know, hopefully apply what we do in venture capital to support Virginia. But then the the other element of it was then I now took that network and I'm using it, you know, for fun with this family business. So like, I'm asking those same people like, Hey, who are the best teams in marketing, social media? I need those people, right? Who are the best people in like merchandising? Who are the best people that know the right people in like promotion and PR? And like, I need access to restaurant owners and chefs and like all these other things that, you know, I am able to like really work with the local, you know, talent and, and entrepreneurs and connect to them. In a way that was different when i just had my venture capital hat on and i think that's kind of fun because i get to learn about the strengths you know of the region and the talent here and so that that's been fun because when i was doing it just the brink on and, and you know my brink hat on i wasn't spending as much time in operations it was really more research and kind of like business development strategy stuff but with the family you know the first landing seafood company hat on i'm, I'm really tactical and in the weeds trying to help my brothers like figure out the right strategies to deploy and that's been helpful because I've built this network, you know, over the last two years. And, and you all and, and a lot of others have really helped open those doors for me. And it's been fun to work with the local companies and talent in this region.
1: I mean, I know that I mean, just just based on the passion that you've had, I'm, I, I can't wait to see uh, to see some oysters on the, on the on some Lynn Haven fancies on the menu. Ooh. And, uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm intrigued. Why don't, wanna, you eat sea- Why don't you eat seafood, Tim? I, do, I do, the biggest thing for me one I'm I I don't know anything about it so I'm completely uneducated um but two I've just I've always been of the mindset that it's for the most part seafood is just a ton of work and not a lot of reward so like crab legs man you like you there's a lot of work to get to it for a tiny tiny piece yep. of meat you know where it's like uh, just uh, give me the steak you know that's uh
2: look I I I had I literally I was on a um... On a radio, you know, show yesterday, talk about this in, in Hampton Roads. The easiest thing I ask people this all the time is, if you don't know how to do it, you don't want to deal with it. It's simple; just throw them on the grill, and then they open like a clam, and then you just scoop them out. And so it's it couldn't be any easier. And the, and if you like, if you're a bourbon guy like me, you know, I always tell people put a couple drops of bourbon on there. You get the salty, you get the sweet. And it's like the 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 chocolate covered pretzel of the of the sea. You know, you get this amazing. <laughs> combination and all you have to do is just turn your grill on lay them on top and then they'll just pop open for you and you just scoop them out so we're, we're gonna we're gonna get you get you into some oysters tim
1: i uh, i look forward to it what, what what do oysters pair well with uh now that we're talking about the the eating aspect
2: i mean i think for, than for the than bourbon it's Orange really crushes. interesting I mean, yeah. I mean, anything that's in, like, I think, I mean, cold beer is great, you know, with that. I, you can definitely get into the nuance. Like, that one of the chefs that we partner with, um, he's, like, super into it. He's, like, literally, like, paring down, like, the specific, you know, flavors with the right type of, you know, wine. Like, there's, there's some really interesting, like, kind of really dry white wines that people love um, with oysters. Um, but, but honestly pick your cold beverage of choice and enjoy some oysters on a hot day. And, you know, you're pretty much as happy as you could be. So I, I would, I, I think you can get as crazy as you want, right. Get super sophisticated, but I try to keep it simple. Just like, don't overthink it, throw them on the grill, get a nice cocktail or, you know, something cold, you know, and then just hit them back, you know, and they're, and they're superfoods, right? Like you can't go wrong. Like you're, is it a one something for one? For <laughs> one, <day>. one <laughs> uh, that would, that'd be tough. That'd be tough. I, uh, i did i did start doing the kind of one drop of bourbon and i was like that's not enough bourbon right and it was like two drops and it was like three drops it's like okay well you got to kind of figure out how many oysters you can have here right
0: <laughs> what what do they call that a power hour
2: yeah yeah yeah. in college that's right in college you're yeah. still doing you're still doing yeah. it zach
0: no i think I've, i think i've done it once and that's about that was enough And what's something we haven't talked about that we should talk about
2: I would really inspire people, or I hope we inspire people. I really, in, in, you know, I don't know, just tell people like, think about different types of businesses here. You know, like I think that Hampton Roads and, and I've been doing research there the last two years, as you all know, there's so many opportunities that don't just have to be like the copy and paste, whatever other town, whatever other tech and whatever other innovation trend is like looking out and being a little bit more, You know horizontal and and seeing all the opportunities and how maybe you could pull together different things and what may work here i mean i have a a laundry list of businesses that i hope i can build in hampton roads over you know the rest of my lifetime but i'm just pulling them from other areas and different things like you know connecting the dots in my head but um i think we kind of sometimes get stuck in like this how do we replicate what's happening somewhere else right versus creating something that may be actually a bit new um or Or we look at an old industry and think, oh, well, you know, that doesn't make sense anymore. Like, you know, that can't be innovated on because it's old. And so I think that that's something I would just hope people in Hampton Roads can get excited about. The 757 is like we got a lot of cool stuff going on, but you just got to maybe think a little bit more laterally about the opportunities.
0: Yeah. Why not double down on the things that you're already good at or you have access to? And obviously water is a big one here and a lot of things happen out of the water. And this is a, a prime example. I, I think oftentimes we we do exactly what you said, which is we try to be something else. We try to build that next whatever, which we have zero ties to, and we wonder why it doesn't work. And it's like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then you yeah. don't double down on 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 the things that you have uh, that 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 have done well forever. So,
1: I wish that and, we had. Uh, I, uh, I'm sorry, Bay. I wish we had mm-hmm. some sort of like system that we could put all the transcripts through, uh, in terms of what we talked about on the show, because it's amazing to me, how many, how often we bring up water and and we've mm-hmm. talked about it over and over and over again. It's like, we've done this show enough now with it. All the, as all these things start to surface terrible, no pun intended, but I mean, water is just consistently one of the things we talk about. I mean, we had Paul from rise on, we've had many, many conversations about water. So yeah, I, t- I totally agree.
2: And I, and I'd say, you know, when it comes to us, and, and I mean this for us and others, but like the, the, the best thing that we really all could use help with is even if you aren't the, the biggest fan of oysters, like certainly, you know, A, letting us know, but then talking to like the places you go, right? Like bars can serve oyster shooters that you normally don't, but they're super fun. And so like letting bars know, hey, have you ever thought about this, right? Like, that we're, we're, we've trademarked, but we're working on you know America's first oyster. Like how do we bring it back, right? Like how do we make this a source of pride? for our region. So like letting us know and connecting you know, us and other farmers to your local chefs and, and bar managers or tenders saying, Hey, like this is coming back. Like you should get on this train. Like I want it as a consumer or, um, or going, you know, setting up, obviously if you have people that like oysters, like we have uh, at least our company does, where if you bring uh, any friend and you're a customer, then we'll give you a free dozen oysters for every new friend that buys from us, because it's obviously easier for us to take a referral than it is to find a new customer, right? So, and that means that every time you buy, we put more oysters in the water than we ever take out. So you can feel really proud of every time you buy from us or a restaurant supports us, you know, that we're putting more oysters back than you're ever taking out. So I think, you know, for us, at least in any other small business like us, like that's one of the best things you ever do is refer us to a, you know, a bar or a restaurant. Um, or if you don't even eat the, eat the oysters, letting your friends know about this and like really reaching out because again, right now you go get an oyster, I promise you like in this region, is coming from the rappahannock or the eastern shore or further away than your backyard so you're hurting the environment technically you're shipping it further you're not doing as good as you could for this region so you know, demanding the lynn haven fancies or, or the lynn haven oysters where you are and helping us you know connect the dots like man couldn't ask for anything more so i really appreciate the exposure and the help here and you know anything that anyone wants to hit us up we're just you know at first landing seafood on instagram or firstlandingseafood.com. You can get all of our information. You know, uh, every single bar, restaurant, one consumer friend, one dad or mom that you know that loves oysters, or likes them over the holidays or whatever. Like every single one of those introductions really, really matters. So we appreciate all the help.
1: Awesome. And well, when's the official launch date? Two weeks. Well, we're open
2: for business. We're open for business now. The, the fancies will probably start being at restaurants around the region. In two to three weeks because it takes a little bit of time to get them through the channel um but we have we have our you know probably our biggest announcement will come from the virginia pilot uh, on sunday so you'll probably see us in, you know typed up there and then uh from there we hopefully get a lot more media like you all and can awesome. start getting the word out and start driving driving it
1: awesome well i can't wait to uh one see the success and two uh, i'm looking forward to uh, i'm going to give this a go yeah. bay i'm going to commit it's oh. going
2: to happen <laughs> we're going to do races. It's happening now that that's going to have to go on social media
1: <laughs> i'm not
0: eating them i'm allergic but i'll you can have Tim, you eat, the you beer. Eat... yes yes <laughs> it's been fun looking forward to yeah, it thanks. and okay. uh we'll chat soon yeah thanks Bay.
2: thanks guys really appreciate it oh and i'll tell you the motto be well do good be fancy
0: i love it i like the word fancy i think that's awesome <laughs> see you guys all right. Thanks.